One of the big topics of discussion today on 680 CJOB is homeless encampments. We're up to around 70 established homeless encampments across the city. Are we making any headway? And we head to North Point Douglas to check in because last year was a tough one on the encampment front. So we just wanted to find out how things are going this year. And speaking of the homeless population, a city councillor in London, Ontario has a rather radical idea suggesting that those who refuse help could be arrested. Do you have any unused gift cards? Or have you ever tried to use one and it hasn't been activated or had no money on it? And inspired by one of Loren's son's dental adventure, we asked you to tell us stories about your adventures with your teeth. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Wednesday, July 19th podcast for The Start. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, and we want to start on gift cards because one of the stories in our run involves a Winnipeg man frustrated with Shell Canada's gift carding system, and uh, customer service has finally had the situation resolved, but uh, that got us thinking about gift cards. You've, you just kind of stumbled upon a, a, a little treasure chest this morning, did you not, Lauren? I did. So for, this man's mad because or upset because he went to go use the card and there's no money on the card, even though it was a gift to him, right? And so I don't know how many times you've bought one of those gift cards for someone and thought, I better stick the receipt with this because you just it seems so, like you can't trust the process no matter how many times you've watched it. And so you have all these questions about gifting the gift card. And then what do you do when you get the gift card like they can all some some years birthdays christmases you might get a bunch of them or you know my husband helps coach kids in our community and so sometimes coaches get the ten dollar gift card or whatever for tim's and then it you're very appreciative but where do you put it and so last night i was just like cleaning up around my bed and i looked down and there's this tim horton's card down there in in a month all sorts of nonsense i don't even know what i'm doing sometimes like i must just snack way more than i think of but it looked like a college bedroom of bag chips and whatnot. I digress. This Tim Horton's cards there. I think I should put this in my wallet. I go to Tim's not every day, but often this morning I f- discovered there's 40 bucks in there and it's been lying what? on my floor for how 40 long? 40 bucks. So then, you know, in addition to the questions about how you manage your gift cards and make yeah. sure that they're gifted properly, I bet you there's just a ton of us who without meaning to don't use those cards and they don't have those expiry dates anymore, but I feel like I need to go through all on the flip side. I went to the liquor store a couple weeks ago with the gift card, all excited. 28 cents left. I'd already <laughs> used it. I was like, going to get a free bottle of wine. <laughs> no, and get a breath mint. But do you have a system? Do you keep them in like a. Oh, have a, totally have a system. Throw them in a jar, in a, in, in a drawer. <laughs> and, and whatever drawer that is. That's where they stay. <laughs> no, we were uh, actually uh, just last weekend uh, reorganizing like everything in our kitchen. And when I say we, I mean Jackie and her sister and her mom. I was busy outside. And I bet you there's a stack of 11 gift cards from various vendors, from movie theaters to Tim Hortons to Apple Play, all these different gift cards that the, the boys have started to get for their birthday or for Christmas, right? Cause they like their video games and, and uh, Amazon and these different services. And I have no idea how much is on any of them. They're, they could all be empty. They could all be spent down to zero, or there could be two bucks here and there. And we know there are tens of millions of dollars of unused gift cards in Canada. Some of that's in my house. All of them <laughs> are in your house from the sound of it. Yeah. I, I do you, I mean, they're really popular now. And you mentioned your kids, they get to a certain age where people aren't sure what to get them anymore. The gift card is probably the number one thing they receive now. 33 million, by the way, is the estimated amount of unused gift cards in Canada. As the, uh, the number of gift cards? Gift cards oh, that, are, that ha- have been unused Oof, to okay. this point. Well, and I, I think it was uh, our colleague Jeff Braun who says that's pretty much all he buys for Christmas is gift cards. For sure. I, 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 so many people do it that there's a group of people who don't like it. Like it feels like it's the lazy gift. And then there's a ton of people that are really appreciative sure. because it's, uh, they want to go out and especially the teens, I find want to go out and buy their own stuff. Do you have a system, Brett? No. Or, or do you get a lot of them? 
I have a, I have a handful. I, I sort of just have like a, the upper shelf on my kitchen counter is where a lot of stuff ends up being stored. Once upon a time, it was more ignored. Like I had them all in a nice little pile, but now they're all buried under various piles of other garbage. <laughs> so I, I should probably organize those because I know I've got an Amazon gift card that I should use. I'm pretty sure I have a Moore's gift card, uh, maybe one for... No, definitely not one for Golf Town because I would have used that immediately. <laughs> but um, yeah, I've got a few gift cards that I need to use. I, I will say that I, I do always, once I start using it, I always make sure to finish it off. Like I went to Cineplex the other day and I had two gift cards and I wasn't sure which one I had used and which one was still. So I I presented one of them to the, the clerk and nothing happened. Mm-hmm. So I guess it was clear and I just stuffed it back in my pocket. But I, if it had like 50 cents on it, I still would have hey, used it. Get extra butter. That's right. That, that, that'll, that'll almost cover the cost um, of the extra almost. butter. I think it's 75 cents. Is it 75 cents? I've got, I had two rather large Starbucks gift certificates gifted to me. And then uh, my buddy Scott goes to Starbucks every day. So when he, he was here from San Diego, I was, I was treating the first couple of days. And I'm trying to figure out, I know I've got like a random amount, like $2.38 or something left on this card and it's likely to go unused because I don't really typically go to Starbucks. $8 London fogs are not really, you know, in my budget most of the time. You can ask for a shot of tea with that 238, like a shot glass. <laughs> could I have uh, just the syrup? Three pumps of syrup, please. That'll be 238, <laughs> Mr. Macklick. I don't, you know, gift cards are interesting because I, I think the retailers love them because it guarantees business. A lot of retailers love them because, say, you come in with a $25 gift card from Golf Town. Yeah. You're likely adding to that. Oh, they and, make money on them always. And then the flip side, the flip side is that they know some of these are going to go unused. And even say it's a $25 gift card. Say only a dollar fifty goes or a dollar twenty-five. That's five percent to the value of the card. So if it's like 20%, you walk into the store and said, "Here's twenty dollars." No, no, I don't want the shirt. Here's just twenty bucks. Well, if it, or it if you buy it and there's a dollar thirty-five and change, are, are you saying no? Keep it? No, and that's essentially what we're doing a lot of times with the, with these gift cards when we don't use them right to the penny. Feel free to weigh in on the subject of gift cards at 204-780-6868. And I just want to mention this quickly because you mentioned Tim's, Loren. Today is uh, Tim Hortons Camp Day. Mm. So for every hot or iced coffee purchased at Tim Hortons today, proceeds will go towards Tim's Camps, and that will help to connect underserved youth across the country through group experience. So if you buy a hot or iced coffee in person or through the Tim's app, uh, Camp Day Donuts are also available at some locations, or you can buy a Camp Day bracelet in one of four colors for three bucks. So that's a great initiative. And um, we also just wanted to tee this up as well. A bit later on this morning, Lauren, we're talking about homeless encampments. Yeah, so our global's Rosanna Hempel did a walk along with the guy whose job is basically to make sure these encampments stay safe, that he finds support for people. There's a couple interesting things out of that. We have as many as 70, I wouldn't have guessed this, 70 homeless encampments in the I city. Winnipeg number. is apparently becoming known as a place where it's safer to, to be homeless. And so is that a good thing or a bad thing? Those are some of the questions I have. And then if you look to London, Ontario, they're talking about a counselor there wants to declare homelessness essentially illegal. So all sorts of questions around this this morning. It is Mackling, McGarry and McNabb and our next segment will tell you how you can win tickets to see the Winnipeg Blue Bombers tomorrow night. Take on the Edmonton Elks and we are going to talk about a rather interesting suggestion out of London, Ontario, as it pertains to homelessness. But before that, getting lots of feedback on our opening chat, which was about gift cards, problems with gift cards. What do you do with your gift cards? Do you have a system? Are you organized? Do you use them all up? And uh, I see one here regarding a shell gift card. Yeah, so this stems from the story that Richard, rather Julian Schuyler had in the news yesterday of someone who was upset where you gift a card. So there's one thing about how you manage your gift cards, but then when you give them to somebody, do you include the receipt? Because you have to have faith that that card has been activated. And this listener said, you know, the story that they had heard in the news run, he says, or they said, the same thing happened with me with a shell gift card. I bought a $50 card for a friend. They went to use it, was told the card wasn't activated. I had my receipt, so I went and got the card 
car back, went to the store, met with the manager and had them look through the purchase logs for that day. They identified that there was apparently several gift cards that day where only one ended up being activated. So there was a lot of people who were in the same situation. This listener says the manager explained to me that I needed to make sure the cashier swiped to one place and then swiped again in the other place. And I explained to her, well, it's not up to me to know the process for activating the card. That's up to the cashier. And in the end, they say the whole thing was embarrassing for them and the person to whom they'd given the card, right? You feel when you go to use it, you feel silly. But then you have to, are you going back to the person who gifted you the card and saying, I don't mean to be rude, but <laughs> like whatever money, amount of money was on here is not on here. I, don't, I, I bet you there's a lot of people who won't even do that out yeah. of embarrassment. Uh, I've hired a uh, handyman in the, in the past. One uh, gentleman in particular did amazing work, but he didn't have a credit card, didn't have a lot of cash. To make a long story short, I would have to purchase Home Depot cards for him in advance so that he could go and buy material. And so he could have a pseudo credit card to do the work in advance. So he wasn't out of pocket the money. And I can't tell you uh, how many times he came back to me and said, this Home Depot card didn't work because I bought it across the street from his place at a 7-Eleven or whatever. So I just, after my second time, I just went, yeah, yeah, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to do a different way. I'll give you cash instead. So feel free to continue to weigh in on the gift card conversation, and we'll share that feedback through the morning on 680 CJOB. But right now, as Winnipeg continues its work to reduce and better serve the burgeoning unsheltered population, a retweet by a London, Ontario city councillor suggesting homeless people should face jail time is attracting attention. So Ward 4 councillor Susan Stevenson tweeted, London could be first. This was followed by an emoji face with hearts around it and a link to a blog post from Michael Smirconish, a political commentator in the United States. In the post, Smirconish writes that shelter should be offered to those who live on the streets on the condition that they accept drug counseling if they are addicted, mental health services if they have mental health issues, and must work or be looking for work if able to do so. The final piece of the puzzle, arresting anyone who refuses assistance. So again, this came from a counsellor in London, Ontario. Counsellor Stevenson spoke with Mike Stubbs on Chorus Radio Station 980 CFPL. It's funny, I didn't know it was going to set off such a firestorm on Twitter. Maybe I should have known. But I was inspired by the whole idea of it. Ending homelessness, a home for everybody, counselling for whatever they need, mental health, drug addiction, um, finding a job and doing it at a provincial and national level and, you know, just choosing to really take care of people. And everybody or people, some people have chosen to jump on the arresting portion of it. No rational discussion about any other portion of the plan. Um, I feel like there's almost a, a desire not to actually talk about any alternatives to what is currently what we're doing here. And even extrapolating it to saying that it's internment and I want to imprison people with no charge. I mean, I really felt it was quite ridiculous. So let's look at this then, because that is the point that just about everybody has grabbed onto because it essentially (laughs) says if, yeah, if you were to return to living on the streets, then you could and should be arrested. It's a, it's a pretty glaring line. We have conversations that are going on about mental health services for individuals made through, whether it's a shelter or other services that we have, same sort of thing with drug counseling. Those those things, maybe, you know, maybe we could run a better system or a more cohesive system, but in terms of, of sharing this, were you not a concerned about the arrest portion of it? Well, if you're going to offer shelter, counseling, you know, all the supports and services, if you're going to offer everything and a group of people say, no, we are just going to live here in the park like this. What, what are we going to do? So the whole idea of outreach, offering these services, meeting people where they are, we hear that terminology from time to time. I'm all in favor of that. I'm also kind of at my wit's end when it comes to people using bus shelters as an example as their home. That's not what those bus shelters were were built for, but these people are clearly in distress. They need something else. The counselor says, well, what else are we going to do? And I think that's a big part of this entire conversation is a lot of people are at their wit's end with regard to... The, the answer to that question, 
what else are we going to do? I, I, the, the, the very idea of arresting somebody for failing to stay in shelter or, or struggle with their addiction, I, I have no time for that. I mean, where's your line then? All sorts of people struggle with different addictions and, and challenges. And what if you were arrested, though, for living in a public space or living in a bus shelter? Is there, is there a different line at that point? Do you know what it costs to jail somebody? It's $100,000 a year. Eighty to hundred thousand dollars a year. We could probably build a heck of a lot more shelters out there and found better beds for detox than arresting somebody for sleeping in a public space. And a lot of people who are homeless or unhoused do so by choice. You know, a lot of people don't go to shelters they because they don't want to, or they 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 don't look for help because they don't want it. They want to just stay off the grid. Uh, because we spoke to the, uh, the the patrol in the exchange district biz, and they 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 were just sort of going around checking on uh, people whom they see frequently, and they they explained to us that some of these some of these folks just are are okay on their own, and they want to keep it that way. So if they are if someone like that is offered shelter, and they say no thanks, so what? Throw them in the back of the trolley and take them off to jail? I don't, I don't think that's the answer. But I think the questions are being asked because of a growing frustration, concern. I think there's a lot of concern that's as well fair. for the well-being Something of these individual individuals. And that's where I'm coming from. But there are also businesses and citizens that are are tired of infrastructure that's designed for one thing accommodating something else. And I think for a lot of people, there's a line that's crossed. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Question for you first, Greg Mackling. Have you ever had braces or retainer? Neither. Loren? Yeah, I uh, had buck teeth in grade five. Mm-hmm. Got braces as a lovely redhead with freckles. I was then called armored carrot by some delightful <laughs> crazy. Oh, my gosh. What? Wow. It was clever. I'll give them that. In what grade? Grade five. Oh. Grade five? They yeah. came up with armored care. I hope that individual. I'm sure it was in a joke if, book or something. Like I that. hope that individual's working in Hollywood or something, like writing jokes. It wasn't. I, I don't somebody. recall feel, it being out of like meanness or spite. Like, I think they genuinely good. thought it was funny. That's and a good. It didn't stick. I don't. Well, I don't know. Maybe that's what they all call me back in the dose. <laughs> Ask when you're golfing there tomorrow. Anyone know the armored Garrett? Oh, sure. Loren McNabb. Big sign. Welcome to Minnedosa, home of the armored Garrett. Yeah. So we're talking about teeth today. We want to know if you've had braces, retainer. Tell us a story about that. Uh, yeah, have you ever had a tooth chipped or knocked out? or an adventure at the dentist, or any other assorted situation weirdness with your teeth. Tyson, Ruwicki, and for Cameron Poitras, why don't we start with you, sir? Oh, I had braces for way too long. It was way too long. I mean, my teeth my teeth were a jungle when, when I got them. Like, my teeth were really bad. <laughs> when you They're, got them? Like, oh, when yeah. you went to the store and bought some teeth? Yeah, it was just, I mean, you might as well. Like, that's what it looked like. It looked like someone just kind of grabbed a couple fake teeth and just plugged them in there as hard as they could. Like, there was a, it was a mess, so it... I was only supposed to have them for two years, and it ended up taking four and a half years. Oh no! And it was brutal. I hate it. And it it's just it was just a little. The right side of my mouth just didn't completely touch, and so my orthodontist had put probably a screw on every single one of my teeth on the right side with the elastics just to try to get that side of my mouth down. And it just wouldn't go, and I was just saying, just take. I don't care about my jaw. I <laughs> I just want my teeth to look straight, and then I'm good. So, but they're off now, and. I'm happy with him. He was a smile. That's a pretty good set of teeth. I was like waiting for him to open his mouth and be like, oh. A couple like a missing tooth. Should have stuck with those braces, kid. Four and a half years. Yeah, I had a retainer for, I think, honestly, it was two years, but it felt like forever. And then when it was all, when it was finally done, uh, about a month later, there was the the, the teeth kind of, as they were setting, they sort of bounced back a bit and then got a little crooked again. Uh, so the the dentist, the hygienist was suggesting that I needed braces. Well, maybe I guess now you need braces. Like, come on! I just got th- got through this ordeal, and now you're telling me I need full braces? Uh, no, thanks. I'm good. I'll take a little bit of squirrely teeth uh, rather than going back for more. Forte, what about you? 
Well, my uh, front left tooth is fake. What? The whole one, the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, what a phony baloney you are. I know. <laughs> this guy with the best smile in the building is a fake tooth. I got a fake tooth. Uh, it was back when I was in probably like grade nine, grade eight or grade nine. And uh, me and my friends, we were, you know, horsing around, wrestling, kind of, you know, fighting it out a little bit. And uh, we were on ice and I slipped and I went face first down and he slipped and he landed on top of my head. So I went face first down, tooth first into the ice. And uh, it turned black, and it died, and so they had to shave it all down. Now there's, uh, like, a cap. Oh. The fake tooth. Does Did it you pull it, it out? No, I can't pull it out. No, it's cemented in my, my, my mouth. Oh, so the cap, and it doesn't come out like like Gabrielle Marchand's tooth when she's eating toffee or anything like that? Party trick? No. no. It's, it's stuck in there. Okay. Poser. Well, look at that. Sarah McCarthy, what about you? I've been fortunate not to have any chipped teeth or braces or anything like that, but I have mentioned this story before when me and my sister and I were on the trampoline and we jumped a little too close to one another. Our heads knocked, but her chip, her tooth chipped, not mine. So her bottom tooth chipped out and uh, went to the dentist next day or so, got it fixed because we found the piece. So they just put it back. And then uh, a couple days later, maybe a week later, um, we're skipping rope and we're doing the whole like jump in with me thing, like you do like double dutch type of thing. And uh, knocked her tooth out again, <laughs> same place, and uh, we didn't get it fixed. It was and just she never played slightly. with you again, right? No, yeah. pretty much. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, we didn't do the trampoline or jump rope after that. <laughs> I um, I have this weird little. I thought it was a chip in my tooth. But it's just this, I don't know, it looks like a chip, but it's not. It's just a tiny thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's enough that for me to notice. And I was wondering, like, where did that come from? <laughs> and then I don't, realized one day when I used to work the Saturday news desk shift, I would always sort of sit with my left arm on the desk, and I'd kind of have my thumbnail sort of scratching my, at my tooth. And then it occurred to me one day, like, oh, my gosh, I carved this. I did this myself with my thumbnail over the course of, like, five years. You think your teeth can come in badly, but the whole reason I had braces was I fell off a chair when I was one or two, two, I think, knocked out my front teeth, the two front teeth, and then I sucked my thumb, like, hard for, like, eight years. And I don't think the teeth grew back in for years. Like, I was just toothless for years. Sucked my thumb so much that my mom would put like nail polish remover on it to try to get me to stop sucking my thumb and I would just lick it all off and then just keep going. Whoa, you are so I was committed, But it made my teeth come out. I did it to myself. Like I sucked the thumb so hard that it pushed the teeth out in these buck teeth. And whenever I'm angry, I will sometimes accuse my sister of pushing me off that chair <laughs> as opposed to falling because we were apparently together that day. But I did it to myself. Yeah. Yeah. How long did you suck your thumb for? Oh, I, I, up till I don't know eight. I remember my dad said to me he was a he didn't smoke a lot, but he'd have a like a what are those cigars that the rum tipped ones? Oh, the Colts. Chew? And then as a kid, you'd like Colts. actually chew the end because you loved the taste. <laughs> so wrong, the eighties. But uh, to the we we had a be, like a deal. He would stop smoking if okay. I stopped sucking my thumb. Yeah, well, that's why I have the teeth I have because I suck my thumb. Way after eight. Nothing wrong with those teeth. Yeah, let's put it. Oh, no, they're a dramatic overbite. I, I never had braces. I've never had anything on my teeth, any implements. But we are paying a lifetime of savings for our kids to do just that right now. We're on round two with our kids on on braces. And uh, just the other day, in fact, I got a phone call from one of the boys panicked. The one of the, bo- the boy that doesn't have braces anymore I think whiskey or Cali ate my retainer. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> what? So it's one of the things they warn you of when you get these things is that the dogs and the cats love the smell of you and your saliva. Oh. And if you don't put them properly in the container, the case at night, they can get their teeth and we'll their paws on em. these things. Oh. And so anyway, it got mangled and chewed up. Uh, we had a $954 bill last week for one uh, dental procedure. Fortunately, insurance covered most of that. Had to replace this retainer. I figured it was going to be at least seven, 800 bucks. It turned out to be only $170. But uh, I told the said son, that's your freebie. If that happens again, you're paying for the next one. <laughs>
You are innocent. You deserve acquittals. I'm now happy to enter them. Those are the words a chief justice uttered as he told two indigenous Winnipeg men they were wrongfully convicted 50 years ago. Brian Anderson and Alan Woodhouse were convicted in 1973 of murder. Anderson was released on parole in 1987, Woodhouse in 1990. Their lawyers have long since argued those convictions were based largely on a signed confession. One, Anderson didn't know what he was signing as English was not his first language. Yesterday, Chief Justice Glenn Doyle said systemic and individual racial discrimination played a role in these convictions. Despite that five-decade-long fight, Anderson said it's not outrage, he feels. No, I think I'm hurt too much to be angry. I'm hurt more than angry. Our next guest perhaps understands that hurt. Ron Dalton was wrongfully convicted 35 years ago. Ron is now the co-president of Innocent Can- Innocence Canada. Ron, thank you for joining us this morning. You're welcome. Each story I know is different. Each experience, I mean, it's probably hard to put into words, but... The hurt, the anger, are they common themes? Do you still feel any of those emotions even after the passage of time? I've been uh, out of prison for 25 years, but my sister and I are are taking the opportunity uh, recently to write down some of our experiences. She raised my three children for 10 years while I was uh, in captivity, and it's time now to pass some of those uh, things on to our family and the younger members who don't recall what we all went through. So, yes, it's, it's... very possible to reach down and touch some of that anger. It'll always be there, I suspect. But as we all know, anger is a vessel that, uh, that consumes the vessel that contains it. So you can't live in constant anger. And I think Brian and AJ are, are good examples of that. They've moved on, done very productive things in the last uh, 40 years since they've been out of prison. But there, there's certainly a, a base of anger there. You couldn't lose 50 years of your life. And when you're 17 and 18 and you're now uh, my age, you've lost most of your life. So you have to be angry and upset over that, hurt. Uh, But I think one of the big things that they're feeling today, and I don't want to speak for them, uh, is they'll be starting a grieving process. They haven't been able to grieve for the last 50 years over what they've lost. But as as, uh, joyful a day as it was yesterday to finally have this over with and It was a rare thing for a justice in any court in this country to declare someone innocent, which is what the chief justice did yesterday for both of these men. It's still, celebration is not quite the right word. It's like getting out from the dentist's office. It's a relief when it's over, but you don't celebrate so much. You mentioned this idea of a wrongful conviction, the judge declaring these individuals innocent, Ron Anderson, uh, or pardon me, Woodhouse, 36 years on parole. Anderson, 33 years on parole. Talk about the impact that has. They might be out of jail. They might be in society, but they've been carrying this tag with them all this time and the limitations that go along with being on parole and their ability to live life fully in the meantime. Yeah, it's it's an important distinction that's lost on most of us and would have been on me uh, 35 years ago if I hadn't lived through it. Uh, But people serving life sentences do exactly that. They serve a sentence until they die. So these men have been living in the community amongst us for a long time, but they're still on restrictions. I've met with Brian a couple of times in Ontario and other places, and he needed written permission to leave Winnipeg to go to Ontario, and he had to check in with the police when he got there. And anything and everything that they want to do. Uh, uh, AJ came from Victoria to be in court yesterday, and uh, when he notified his parole officer uh, a week ago that he was making these plans, uh, uh, they got all up in arms because uh, on their books, he was still under their control, although the federal justice minister had overturned their convictions a week before. So it's a constant thing that's, that's with you. Does this, does this change your faith in the system at all? Unfortunately, and and in my position as as co-president of Innocence Canada, I've met just about all of the wrongly convicted individuals in this country. Some have passed on now and and others are still with us. Uh, But I don't know that you can ever restore our individual faith in the system. I think things like yesterday when we see 50-year-old major errors 
uh, being acknowledged. I was going to say corrected, but that's not even the right word because you can't correct them at this point. But when we see people recognizing that this happens, that helps restore faith. Uh, our mission is more about getting people out of prison who don't belong there and generally trying to improve people's faith in the justice system. It's not a perfect system, and it'll always be making mistakes. Uh, our organization also lobbies for change, and the federal justice minister introduced a bill in, in Parliament, Bill C-40, uh, back in February to create a new independent publicly funded body to do some of the work that we're doing. We're a nonprofit organization that spends half of our time raising money to exist and the other half trying to fix the problems uh, created by the the justice system over the last 50 years. Ron, thank you for taking the time for joining us. If, if you, if there's any way to give advice in this moment, and I don't know what that would be, but you talked about losing 10 years with your children and trying to, you know, you know the stigma that always exists. What would it be for these men and for yourself as they take these next steps forward today? I, I think what they have to do is, is continue what they've been doing <clears throat> for the last 30 or 40 years as they've been living in the community is, <clears throat> sorry, uh, hold their heads high. They have done absolutely nothing wrong. They're shining examples. And, and the judge was very clear yesterday in telling them that he didn't have to restore their dignity. They had dignity to spare. Uh, so they, they can hold their head high, continue to be the bright, shining examples that they have been of how people can persevere under uh, terrible oppression sometimes and just get on with their lives. There's always going to be people that will recognize them and think that they're the people that got away with murder or something. There's nothing you can do about that. But they won't be spending the rest of their lives thinking about that. They have families and they have the rest of their lives to lead. Ron Dalton is co-president of Innocence Canada. Thank you very much for joining us, Ron. We appreciate it, sir. You're welcome. But right now we want to discuss Whittier Park, Alexander Docks, off the Red River in St. Vitale, off the Assiniboine at the Osborne Bridge. Just some of the places Winnipeggers may have seen homeless encampments. So from what we've been hearing in the news this morning, there are as many as 65 to 70 in the city at the moment. Steve Antle is a fire prevention officer with the Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service. His job is to try and connect anyone in the camps to supports they might need. And then, of course, to help keep those encampments safe. He says he says people from all walks of life. Young folks aging out of out of being in care, folks that um, the cost of living just became too much. He says despite our climate, Winnipeg is a draw in some ways for people who are struggling. Winnipeg is kind of getting known as, as, a, play, as a good place to be homeless. A place where they're going to be supported, uh, a place that they're going to be assisted, they're going to be able to be, quote unquote, allowed to live in encampments. Again, that was Steve Antel, a fire prevention officer with the WFPS. He took Global News on a walk through many of the camps. You can see more of that story tonight at 6 o'clock. Right now, we turn to Scott Wilkinson, Deputy Chief of the WFPS, with our own questions. Deputy Chief Wilkinson, good morning. Welcome back to The Start. Good morning. Thank you. Well, up to 70 encampments. And when Loren shared that number with us this morning, I can't speak for Brett, but I know my eyes got a little bit large. Any sense of how that number compares to previous years? Uh, from what we've seen over the past years, that's fairly consistent and or slightly growing. The, the problem really started to kick up in about 2016, where we started to see more of these encampments, uh, to the point in the last number of years, some of them are even continuing to overwinter. So the, the numbers have steadily increased over the last six or seven years. Steve said in that one clip we played, uh, Deputy Chief, that Winnipeg is earning a name as, quote, you know, a good place to be homeless. And there'll be people out there that will listen to that and think, well, why would we want that? What's going on? What's your response to that as the idea that, yes, you can come here and set up camp and it's great that we're providing some supports, but in theory, we'd think we'd want less of this. Well, it's it's the question of uh, people looking for a place to be safe and people looking at not having other options. I mean, housing is is the struggle uh, across the board in this country right now, and then certainly here in Manitoba and Winnipeg as well. One of the draws, uh, one of the advantages is a lot of great uh, service providers and outreach organizations that are helping uh, people who are living unsheltered, so they know that they have those resources. Um, but there's also sometimes we have a little bit less uh, structure and regulation of enforcement uh, that allows them to be a little more free as to where they may be able to set up versus some other centers. 
And one of the concerns I, I imagine about these encampments is, is safety as it pertains to fires, right? Uh, totally. I mean, all year round, and particularly in the winter as well, we uh, we have concerns with uh, fire and life safety in the encampments. People are, are doing their best to survive, and uh, Steve's out there uh, working to educate people on some of those risks and make sure that they're complying with regulations for, that are there to benefit their safety. But we see continual issues of propane in encampments and liquid fuels, uh, fires in the wrong places. And it's extremely concerning because the type of materials that people are building shelters out of and tents are not designed uh, to be fire safe. And when there's fires there, we have uh, extensive risk of fire spread to the point where people wouldn't be able to escape. And we're concerned about the loss of life in those situations. You mentioned Steve, Steve Antel, fire prevention officer with WFPS, and the idea of connecting with these people and talking about the different services that exist in the community. We have to imagine that there is resistance, hesitance to, you know, making contact or reaching out for that help. Do we know why that is? What are you hearing from folks that are living in these in these encampments as as to why that's a better alternative, for lack of a better terminology? Well, there's a, a large number of reasons, and Steve, uh, you know, alluded to some of those in in the in the tour he did. But we've got a, a lot of people living uh, even with mental health and substance abuse orders. So, number one challenge is getting them the resources they need to help uh, battle those issues. Um, that's a, a a lot of people are in the encampments because of those issues and not always in a good place to uh, to seek the, the assistance they need or or really prepared. They've been living in these situations to the point that they're not comfortable in some housing options, which is why we really promote trying to get people into housing, but in supportive housing where they can live in community and get those resources, things like substance abuse, mental health and Indigenous connections. We're speaking to Deputy Chief Scott Wilkinson of the Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes we've had to dismantle these camps. There's been orders to do that. And, and I'm wondering, when does that happen? Is that just a safety issue? Because, you know, again, to play the naysayer out there, there are people that will say we shouldn't be allowing this, just tear them down. Well, I mean, we certainly understand the, the you know, the community concerns and when we share those, I mean, our approach with the fire paramedic services is that we're looking after the safety of, of the whole community, including those in the encampments. So when we are, uh, we have only occasionally had to vacate encampments and we've done that on a case-by-case basis where we found that we have ongoing issues with those safety and compliance to life safety issues for fire or, you know, the use of fuels. We had a few extreme cases where there was providing a danger to the public and and to our first responders, and in those cases, we did act to work with the resource providers, vacate the encampments, and work with the providers to try to find alternate accommodations. Yeah, because that's always my curiosity. If a camp is dismantled, these, those, these people need to go somewhere, so do they just find a new spot to build a new encampment? Well, we do work with the outreach service providers and, uh, and the various departments in the city, and our goal is to try to find alternate accommodations, working with various authorities and housing authorities to find accommodations. But, you know, unfortunately, not everybody is in a position where they're comfortable going into some of those, and often they don't necessarily stay. So that, that is one of the realities for sure. So what's next? We're having a conversation this morning uh, about this idea of offering these different services and, and the outreach involved. Is this just going to be a matter of treading water and, and doing what we're doing right now in, until we can come up with sort of the next plan here? I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around uh, the idea of this being a perpetual issue. Well, you know, it, it's it's challenging because this comes from all levels of the community, levels of government, various stakeholders. There's there's no one entity that, you know, has the ability to take the, you know, required action to, you know, quote unquote, fix it today. Uh, we're working we're with the service providers, with the levels of government and with various city departments to try to continually find new ways to, to service the issue. One of the biggest things, of course, as I mentioned before, is you know, work that's being done by the levels of government right now to put in supportive and transitional housing. Because at the end of the day, we need a place for these people to go and a place for people to get the supports they need for mental health and addictions. And if, if those are in place, that starts to give us options uh, to, help, to start really helping people and getting them out of these situations. Because the situations they're living in are, are not tenable, they're not healthy, and, and we need to work to get them into a better position. And for the people who might add up the cost of that, you know, having those beds, Scott, or, or, or the other resources, I mean, on the flip side, you and your people must be spending a tremendous amount of time and taxpayer money just to make sure we keep people safe. So there's money being spent either way. 
I would agree. I mean, there's going to be money spent either way. It's how do you want to spend it? Right. Do we want to spend it proactively and try to help people and get them out of these, you know, relatively, you know, very unhealthy and, and, and negative conditions? Or do we want to be reactive and continue to service those issues? I mean, given the option, I would like mm-hmm. to, I mean, I've, I've had to dedicate Steve Antle full-time to this process. The service providers dedicate large numbers of funds to trying to help people with harm reduction and resourcing. Um, we need to work ourselves out of a job in that respect. Scott Wilkinson, Deputy Chief of the Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you very much for this. We appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. And Greg, coming up at 835, we're going to have more on neighborhood reflections on homeless encampments. Yeah, North Point uh, Douglas, uh, they have a residence association. We spoke with uh, one of their spokespeople last year about the situation in his neighborhood and what was going on basically on the other side of his back fence of his property. We'll find out if things are getting better or worse in that part of the city as it pertains to the relationship between those in the neighborhood and those who are living in camp in encampments along the, the shores of the Red River. This is the headline from a story at globalnews.ca dated May 27th, 2022. North Point Douglas residents voice concern over growing encampments. The story goes on to say North Point Douglas residents are looking to resolve concerns over growing encampments. Encampments that have been popping up in parks, along the riverbanks, as well as behind the, the sign that welcomes people to the neighborhood. Residents say they are concerned about what these encampments are leaving behind, such as needles. Quote, the encampments that we're seeing just create a prolific amount of garbage. Those words came from a spokesperson for the North Point Douglas Residents Association. His name is Howard Warren, and he joins us now. Good morning, Howard. Hey, good morning. You know, we talked about this this morning, the idea that we're seeing many encampments this year and that they might be slightly rising. I'm curious, from where you are in your neighbourhood, what are you seeing when it terms of the growth, the size, or just what some of these encampments might look like? Yeah, in our immediate vicinity, uh, at the present moment, there's not a lot going on. Uh, we had a lot of wire fires, like people burning the insulation off copper wire, uh, earlier in the spring, and that seems to have dissipated. Uh, I think they probably are tired of having the fire department come constantly and put their fire out. Uh and uh, I, in the north, around the Harry Lazarenko Redwood Bridge and in the uh, Louise Bridge area in the south part, I know that there are growing amounts of encampments. And what I've noticed is there seem to be fewer individual encampments and more larger banded together communities living down uh, on the river. Well, the number of encampments, uh, you know, seems to be stable for the most part, according to WFPS. Uh, We were sort of surprised to hear that the number is at 70 or thereabouts in our city. And, And Howard, last year, you told us you were concerned about the tension that was building between those who live on your street and, and, and your neighboring streets and those who live in the encampment. What is that situation like now? Well, again, where I'm at or we're at, it's 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 kind of a stable situation. Uh, thankfully, I do know in the southern part that there is tension rising uh, due to growing uh, encampments. Uh, there's people doing stuff like bicycle chop shops, uh, wire fires. They have propane tanks and generators. And I, I know some folks that live in that area, I mean, they don't leave their house at night because there's people running around in the yard, and and that's you know that's just not a, a great great vibe at all. Um, and the, the ongoing destruction of the, uh, the trees on the riverbank. We need all the trees we can get um, do for riverbank stabilization among among just other things, right? Like the environment and and just the atmosphere. So there have been other issues like fires and abandoned structures in your part of the city. How do you feel about the way the city is dealing with those issues? Yeah, well, we have had a tragic spring summer. Um, we, of course, lost the uh, Vulcan Ironworks and 
that was devastating, and not to mention a huge health hazard for the residents of both North and South Point Douglas. I was reading comments of people on social media saying they're still coughing up weirdness from their lungs over the Vulcan fire, and we're losing housing as well, uh, you know, through neglect of vacant housing, and they get boarded up, but people just rip the boards down and go in, and next thing you know, there's uh, five or six fire engines on, on the street so, yeah, that, that's not good. I want to play you a clip here at Howard if uh, you have a moment. Uh, Global News spoke to Steve Antle, who is a fire prevention officer with the Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service, and he connects people with supports they might need in these camps. He tries to keep those encampments safe because, of course, fire is an issue. And he had this to say about the fact that Winnipeg is a draw in some ways. Winnipeg is kind of getting known as, as, a, pla- as a good place to be homeless a place where they're going to be supported, uh, a place that they're going to be assisted, they're going to be able to be, quote-unquote, allowed to live in encampments. What do you make of that? On one hand, I sit here and think, okay, it's good that there's the support, and on the other, that's not exactly what you want to be a draw for. (laughs) Not in the slightest. I mean, we've been hearing that story for the past three or four years now, uh, that it's you know free waterfront property in Winnipeg, and that that is uh, something that's known across the country. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a mix, isn't it? It's a, you're really torn because on the one hand, you, you, there's some very destitute folk out there who are struggling through some mental health issues among poverty, racism, all the rest. And I mean, come October, it's Winnipeg. It gets serious down here. Um, you, you got to have your ducks in a row if you're going to survive in that in that element. Um, but yeah, we have heard, definitely heard that Winnipeg is a, a attractive place to come to, uh, and it well, it it is virtually true. Like there's nothing done uh, about it. It, it. So it seems. I mean, I read this morning about the provincial government, uh, and these are great incentives for uh, 3.4 million in annual rental subsidies to create new uh, housing for people transitioning out of homelessness, and also the fact that uh, five, I think it is, emergency shelters are going to be 24/7 starting this October. That is going to save some lives too. Howard, some people will ask, why do you live where you live? Why don't you just move? <laughs> well, that wouldn't be the first uh, first time I've been asked that. But honestly, folks, this is one of the most beautiful spots in this city, whether people are aware of that or not. It is pristine. It's nature. It is a diverse neighborhood full of wonderful people uh, of all nationalities, all economic backgrounds. And it's got a vibe to it here that I just can't tear myself away from. So... I love Point Douglas. So if, if, you, if, if more encampments uh, make an appearance in your neighborhood, will that be cause for concern, or is it more uh, cause for concern only if those in the encampments become more aggressive? Well, crime is always, it is the North End, and we're always, you know, uh, have our eyes open and we're not fooling ourselves. Uh, there are incidences that occur that are quite serious in nature at times, and uh, so we're always got an eye out for that. Of course, a byproduct of the encampments does seem to be, uh, like I stand by my the last time you interviewed me, and, and the amount of garbage and plastics and stuff that goes into the river, into the soil, the destruction of the trees, the needles left behind. It, it, it's that would be a concern in any neighborhood, and it it is a concern here, definitely. Howard Warren, Howard Warren, pardon me, joining us live from the North Point Douglas Residents Association. Howard, thank you very much for the insight. We appreciate it, sir. It's been a pleasure, and uh, thanks for your interest. And he makes a great point regarding the the riverbanks. The uh, there's a camp right off the Osborne Bridge mm-hmm. as you're crossing from the east. Uh, from the pardon me, from the north to the south, uh, on the west side, and there is trash everywhere. And I never even thought of the implications of that trash. I see it on the ground, but the, the, I wonder how much trash does make it into the waterway. And the, con, another concern I have about that is I've seen before camps on that along mm-hmm. that bank that have gone up in flames, like like inferno. Or there was that camp that was under the Osborne Bridge. 
One yep. of our security guards in this building, he told us that there was a homeless camp set up in a parking lot down the street that he said it, it, it exploded because a couple of propane tanks sure. uh, went boom and then it caught fire. So, like, I, I, I lo- it, it, it kind of makes me uh, happy in a way that they're that some of these people are able to to form community together, at least find some community. But that safety concern for their safety uh, is something that I always worry about. I've, you know, if I've, I've there was a bus shack on Osborne that that went up in flames. So, yeah, like I, they got to stay warm. And, and we can, you know, he talked about North Point Douglas and, and it's often the neighborhood we might think of first. When, unfortunately, when we talk about these things, but we're crazy if we think that this is not happening. I, I let me know if you haven't seen one of these in your neighborhoods, particularly if your neighborhood encroaches upon a river, because they're almost everywhere. And I'm shocked the places I turn them where I see someone, you know, panhandling or where you see a tent set up where it's in the quote unquote unexpected spots of the city. It's it seems to be everywhere. Yeah, it's essentially, you know, these people, we use the terminology encampment. They're 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 camping out. Uh, not in in the way you or I think about it, but as a as a last resort in a lot of cases. And I was surprised several years ago going for a walk. I won't say where, but I was absolutely shocked when I saw someone coming up from the riverbank, and I stopped and investigated with my eyes a little bit more to realize, my goodness, there are multiple li- people living down there right now and it was in a part of the city that you would probably least expect it it's mackling mcgarry and mcnab we are asking you today to tell us about your teeth you ever had braces you ever had a retainer you ever had an adventure at the dentist or the orthodontist or perhaps with your animals, kind of a tie into what we were discussing yesterday about weird pet stories. Craig says, my dog chewed my first mouth guard. So a little bit of sanding, back in my mouth it went. The next morning, I made sure to put it in the case, not just sort of on top. That evening, I came home to the case on the floor and night guard never to be seen again. Mm-hmm. Was it just a, a pre a pre pre warning? Was the yeah. first I had to chew this up, and then next time I'm going to eat it. Yeah, he didn't, that dog didn't bury it. He <laughs> ate it and put good use to it in his belly. <laughs> uh, Vicky with another. Uh, this is pretty. Uh, it's, a, it's an exercise in persistence, Greg. When I was in junior high, after wearing braces for about eighteen months, I was thrilled to graduate, quote unquote, to a retainer. My school team was participating in a volleyball tournament and between games, my friends and I crossed the street to have lunch at a McDonald's before eating. I popped out my retainer and put it on the tray beside my food. My friends groaned and told me that it was gross. So someone covered the appliance with a napkin so they wouldn't have to look at it. Well, you know what they say, out of sight, out of mind. And after lunch, I dumped my tray in the garbage and went back to play volleyball. In the middle of the next game, I thought my mouth felt kind of strangely empty. And I realized I didn't have my retainer. My parents happened to be watching from the stands. When I told them about the missing retainer, they insisted we retrace my steps and go back to the restaurant. Well, we spoke to the manager. He let us dump out and dig through several bags of garbage in the back of the kitchen after about a half hour of digging through discarded food and some other disgusting things. Success! Unfortunately, this was just one of the many where is my retainer stories to come. In your time in both of you in restaurants, uh, Chicken Terry's, Loren, for example, did customers ever have to search the garbage bags? Not search, but they came back for it or you'd see it there, but not not often. But that was back when we were freestyling with our teeth. You know, you just that was the beginning of caring about retainers <laughs> and braces and headgear. Yeah, mostly yeah, credit cards. I used to always get a kick out of the people that would come back and say, I know I left my credit card here. Well, if you're so sure, why did you leave it here in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> I see that quite almost every time I go to the pub, they'll get a phone call and uh, Peter will walk over to the drawer, hang on, and then he'll grab like six cell phones out of the drawer <laughs> yep. and walk back to the phone and say, okay, what is it? And nope, I don't have that one here. I got six <laughs> others though, if you want. <laughs> But uh, today's winner is Larry. 
And uh, we should probably just provide a, a bit of a, a warning here that, uh, you know, if you're eating, it's, it's kind of gross, but it's funny. The it, funny outweighs the gross. It's funny. Okay, Larry says, hey, guys, years ago when I was living in Edmonton, my friend Neil and I were at a social at the Edmonton Drillers Soccer Club. I decided I needed to use the urinal, and Neil, who was already feeling no pain and was uh, into the bag already, decided he needed to go also. After standing at the urinals for about a minute, Neil blabbering on and on, his dentures fell out of his mouth and into the urinal while he was midstream. No big deal to him. When he was done, he picked them up, rinsed them under the tap, and put them right back in his mouth without missing a beat. I laughed so hard. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> Ew. Legend. Neil is a legend. <laughs> well, Larry, thanks to your friend Neil and the Edmonton Drillers, you are going to see the Winnipeg Blue Bombers take on the Edmonton Elks tomorrow night at IG Field. And by the way, the game day special this week, first of all, wear white tomorrow. That's that's right. The Bombers are wearing their road whites tomorrow. The the jerseys they won the Grey Cup in twice. The game day food special, which we got to sample earlier this week. The Winkler Meats Farmer Cheese Sausage with caramelized onions. Caramelized onions, Forte. You like the caramelized onions, right? I think. I love them, but I missed out this week. That's right, because you took some surprise days off. Yeah. Now we're like, where's Forte? I don't know. He didn't tell us he was taking so off. So we phoned Wade Miller and said, can we have some food, please? <laughs> Jeff's not here. Moran <laughs> is. So you can get this at the concession stands in sections 106 and 130 for 8 bucks. The Tailgate Plaza, by the way, opens at 5.30, kickoff at 7.30, $5 beer, $3.50 hot dogs, $3.50 soft drinks until kickoff. And, of course, you can get tickets at bluebombers.com or call 204-784-7448. So, again, the Winkler Meats Farmer Cheese Sausage with Caramelized Onions. It was good. Like, that it was a quality, quality sausage. Very impressed with the stuff that they do use from Winkler Meats. Good times at the football game. But right now, we've got a big update on a big event I took part in on Saturday, July 8th. The 26th annual Pritchard Memorial. Huge golf tournament at Carmen Golf and Curling Club to raise funds for cancer care treatment in Manitoba in honor of the late Mike Pritchard. Darren Pritchard is brother to Mike and one of the primary organizers of this event. Darren, hello. Hello, Brett. Good morning. Welcome back to the show. So let's just get right into the update. Last year, you raised tens of thousands of dollars What's the total this year? Yeah, we set our goal out this year to crack $100,000, and I'm very proud to say we did that. Uh, we raised $101,492 for our charities here in Manitoba, so we were able to crack the $100,000. Congratulations, Darren. What a, a massive undertaking. What an incredible result. And what can you say about Manitobans who stepped up? And some of those people... Have never even been to Carmen. They never even set foot on the golf course. They were involved in the incredible online auction. Yeah, it's unbelievable. You know, I we took out over a hundred prizes out to Carmen for the online auction. It took the whole next week just to get those who purchased prizes um, their prizes to them. We had bids from Saskatchewan. I had a person who bought some of the hockey sticks from Buffalo, New York. He found us online. So uh, shipping prizes all over Canada and into the U.S. But the online auction has really helped uh, grow this tournament and helped grow the the money we've made. And uh, like I said, shipping stuff all over Canada and into the U.S. Now all the way to Buffalo. I mean, that's incredible. And when you think about the fact that there's so many ways to then maybe help raise funds for for such a great cause and the idea that it's not just the online auction it started off with just the golf right so how many golfers did you had because you had 300 last year how many this year yeah we just short of 300 this year we actually had someone that backed out uh, they had something come up last minute so we had 296 golfers in the tournament on july 8th so uh right right there and then on the friday we started something else and we had a two-person alternate shot on friday afternoon and we had about 32 golfers in that. So that helped us raise a little bit of money as well. Uh, and we're going to continue to grow that next year. Hope to get closer to 100 in that um, because we're raising money there as well. People are coming down that maybe don't want to spend a whole day at the golf course. It's a long day on the Saturday with that many golfers. So a two-person alternate shot, they can get through in three, three and a half hours. But they still show up. They still support the cause, and they get to see all the online prizes all set up in the golf course and purchase a 50-50 or raffle ticket, so that really helped as well. 
Now, Darren, from my vantage point as a first timer in this tournament, I just the the events it had this overwhelming feeling of community. Do you get that sense as well? Yes, absolutely. I do, Brett, and I appreciate you coming out. And you're all invited to come next year as well. Uh, we have people that have, have come back and flying back from Alberta back to this golf course. That uh, um, we have people flying in from Ontario. They make this a weekend, and they come back and they make a whole weekend out of it. And now they're golfing Friday afternoon. They're camping in the campground. But yeah, the communities come together. People that used to live in the community come back and make it a reunion. Uh, it's really growing, and that's why we couldn't shut it down after the 25th year, and we're keeping it going and rolling. Uh, we just want to make more and more money for cancer to help our charities out. So, Darren, as you come into Carmen from the east, there's a great billboard uh, that celebrates uh, one Carmenite in particular, goaltender Eddie Belfour, and how special was it to have him present uh, for the tournament? Yeah, it, it was unbelievable, to be honest. Showed up Friday uh, talking to the general manager and golf pro, Dean North, and uh, he handed me his phone and said, Ed Belfer wanted to talk to me. And it's not every day you get to talk to an, an icon and a legend like Ed Belfer. And he said, Darren, I'd like to do something special for your golf tournament. And I said, Ed Belfer, what can you do? We'd love to have you here. So he hit on hole number six, a par three. He hit the first shot. Everyone after that uh, tried to beat him. He gave away a bottle of his bourbon and also signed Ed Belfer autographed jerseys. Uh, what made it even more special is on Friday, we talked about what he wanted to do. He came down to the golf course. And back in the day, I, I kind of heard this, but I didn't really know. But he actually taught my brother Mike in phys ed. Uh, he was in grade 12, and my brother Mike was in grade 7. So there was a phys ed 305 program back in the day. So he knew Mike very well and taught him phys ed when he was in grade 7. So kind of a neat touch having Ed Belfer there and the fact that he knew my brother very well. And, uh, yeah, everyone really liked that because it wasn't part of the tournament. It got added last minute. And to talk to a Stanley Cup champion like that from Carmen was really special. So, of course, all of this is in honour of your late brother, Mike. What do you think he'd make from of this and, and all your efforts and just how much it's grown, Darren? Yeah, I think he'd be pretty, pretty proud and pretty special, you know, to keep his name alive after that many years. Um, to be able to give this money back, you know, passing away from sarcoma to, to help who we can help. You know, $100,000 should be able to help a few people. Um, half of that goes to South Central Cancer Resource down in Morden, Manitoba, and the other half is going to go to Cancer Care Manitoba. I, th- I think he'd be very proud, uh, and I can't say enough about the committee and all those who support and all our supporters that, uh, you know, whole signs and platinum sponsors. This is a massive event with a lot of people behind it. Uh, the family and the committee is very proud of what we've accomplished. Do you ever get calls from other golf tournament organizers asking for tips on how, because you, your event is so gargantuan. Uh, I would imagine other organizers might be, you know, looking for some, some help, some, some suggestions. Yeah. Well, this year it was kind of neat is that my younger brother brought over Eric fair. Eric fair runs his own golf tournament in Winkler and Morden. And I know he wanted to come and see how this tournament is run and what happens, and I know he was very impressed. It is a long day, and you would know, Brett, you were there. It is a seven-hour golf round, but he said, Eric Ferris said, I can't believe that took seven hours because it goes so fast. It seems very fast because there's lots going on on the course with pierogies and pizza and ice cream and the different sampling holes. But, yeah, Eric Ferris came over because he wanted to see how this tournament was run. So you've had a couple of weeks to digest count the funds, figure out where you're at. When does the planning begin for next year, Darren? It already has. Uh, we got a wrap-up meeting coming up right away, um, but we've already been talking via text and email on what we want to change for next year. There's a few little things that didn't go as planned, but uh, it's always in the plans and prizes and stuff for next year and different jerseys. My brother's working on uh, you know which ones we need for next year, which one raised a lot of money, and maybe ones that didn't get as much as we wanted, but with a with a tournament this big, we're already in planning process for next year. And will it be the same website next year as well? Absolutely, yeah. The website does not change. PritchardMemorial.ca uh, is where it is. We'll have uh, registration and online auctions going up early in the next year. Uh, but yeah, PritchardMemorial.ca is where everything will be posted for next year as well to register and also to bid online. 27th annual Pritchard Memorial will be July 6th, 2024. Darren Pritchard, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We appreciate the update, and thanks again for uh, having me out, and hopefully we'll be back next year. Absolutely. Thanks very much for your time, guys. And uh, by the way, the golf course is great. 
I hadn't been. To, it's only the second time I played Carmen. The first time I played it was the stupidest golf day we I think ever because we went like mid October or late October. Oh. It was a nice sunny day, but it was the wind caught us off guard. We knew it was going to be windy, but it was honestly like eighty kilometer. Oh wind. my. And That's I wore no fun. shorts, so I was frozen. We were the only people dumb enough to be on the golf course that day. So I've always wanted to go back and play it on a nice genuine, day. Genuine experience. Yeah, and it was a beautiful day. It was The wind was calm. It wasn't too hot. And, it's yeah, it's a great course. And it's part. It's on the CGOB discount golf card, too. So. Oh, I don't uh, need to know how your game went. I'm more interested in, did you have the pierogies on the course? Like of course a, I did. Yeah. Mr. Pierogi, I believe, was the if name of the vendor. You stop and have pierogies midway through any sort of event. Yeah, the, the pierogies were great. There was a pizza place called Willie's Pizza, which was is in the area, I believe, and it was fantastic. And there was uh, ice cream sandwiches, I think, from Sills. Mm. Is it Sills? Yeah. Sills. Yeah. And, uh, and actually, Brazen Hall was there as well, and I was very thankful to be partnered with the co-owner oh. of Brazen Hall, Chris. Did they have their uh, candied bacon? Yep, the candied bacon. They had their big van, and they were giving out samples. So we were able to take a generous advantage of, of that. Was uh, Kapansky good to golf with? Good yeah. uh, golf partner? He was great. Okay, he he sung some terrific putts. And then uh, we played with Tom Houlihan and his son Everett. Uh, was it where they were our other, they filled out our foursome. And Tom's, I said, how many of these have you been to? And he sort of stopped and he goes, um, all of them. <laughs> uh, and then I saw that he was speaking to one of the brothers, so he had a very Aww. clear connection. And then we played with four youngsters, all 21, 22 years old, who were a uh, blast to, to play with. So it, was, it really was a great day. As he mentioned, it was a long day. For us, it was almost eight hours on the golf course, but it was super fun. So many incredible courses in Manitoba, Brett, and I know you're going to get a peek at a couple of your favorites over the next few days. That's right. The new nine begins on Friday. We're heading to Minnedosa for golf on Friday, Clear Lake on Saturday, and Nipawa on Sunday. And actually tomorrow, for our small town salute, we are going to visit with Minnedosa because we just want to check in and see how they're doing because a lot of golf courses just got hammered by flooding last year. And Minnedosa... Might might be the, one of the worst uh, from what I just just based on what I saw on social mm. media. I thought like there's a golf course under there under all that water. So close to the river, so it's always not always, but can can be a problem. But I say what you're hitting up this weekend is the perfect triangle, the golden triangle of Manitoba. Yeah, I mean, you could have just gone Minnedosa, Clear Lake, Minnedosa. That and then, been, <laughs> and then left out. I was going to say a wonky corner there. But I will say, if you go to Nipawa, I stopped two weeks ago and had Uncle Tom's at Nipawa. I was saying Uncle Tom's was one of my favorite restaurants in Minnedosa. They now have a little shack sort of set up off the highway in oh. Nipawa, and I just love that burger. Tom Mush. Okay. Tom, Mush, or Tom yeah. Teen with bacon. Okay. Tom Boy, small. Maybe Jody that'll there? be our. Maybe that'll be our lunch on the way out. Tom Mom, Tom Dad, Tom Fries. <laughs> was Tom Jody Coke. there? Or? Her husband was there. Okay. Came right up. And as soon as I walked up, he's like, I thought this might be for you. How many Lorenz are ordering a Tom Mush? <laughs> I like, don't mind if I do. So that's coming up tomorrow at 735 for our small town salute.